books to read in the Bible. And I think there are many reasons for why that is. First, I think it's where they are in the Bible. So they come, we've had beginnings, we've had the historical books, and now we get wisdom books. They're all located in the Old Testament, right after the historical books, kind of in between them. But they're not beginning books. They don't describe the beginning of something, and they're certainly not historical books. They tell us something different. Wisdom. And I think that's the second reason that makes this kind of tough, is what do you think of as wisdom literature? The first thing I think of is like self-help books. I'm sure you've all seen some. I've read a couple of them. Now imagine going to Barnes and Noble, going to the self-help section and picking out a book and it doesn't have a title on it. And then you try to read that self-help book. I think you'd run into some problems, right? First of all, it doesn't have a title, so you have no idea what it's about. You have no idea what to expect. It might be hard to get into. And the second thing is it's kind of like a textbook. Most self-help books want you to learn. So they're written a different way, almost that you should take them step by step. There's another category of wisdom literature, and it's Proverbs. Little pithy sayings, and I'm sure you guys know some. We have many in English. They're usually thought of as idioms. I'll try some on you. You can lead a horse to water, but you can't make him drink it, right? Subtitle, how to deal with stubborn people. (laughs) Or maybe the early bird catches the worm, even shorter, how to be a good morning person, right? And so in English, they might be a little cheesy or maybe a little hokey to you because it's not usually how we communicate, right? We like to explain things. Like the historical books and the beginning books, we like a narrative. But the wisdom books found in the Bible are kind of like the wisdom literature we think of today. You might think of Chinese proverbs, one-line sayings that give you good advice. And again, you might think it's a little cheesy, but that's how they used to communicate. That's how they would actually write out their wisdom. And so that's what we find in the Bible. It was a way that they communicated, and it was a way that they could study God's Word. So the third thing we have to tackle before we get into the wisdom books, isn't just how they're written or how they're read, because it's different than what we're used to. It's the topic. Wisdom. And now this is a, a big topic, but what actually is wisdom? See, when I was in school, and I don't know if you were taught this too, but they always started wisdom with a discussion on knowledge. See, knowledge is a little easier to understand, right? Knowledge is something you can learn, something you can look at in a book, and usually it can be measured. And then they go from there to say wisdom is applied knowledge. Wisdom is applied knowledge. It's not just what you know, it's not just something you can measure, but it's what you do with it. It's how you use that wisdom. And so today... I want to think about wisdom kind of like that, but maybe a little different. Wisdom is seeing a bigger picture. And what do I mean by that? I think in the wisdom books, in the Bible, God gives us wise sayings. He gives us a story in Job and explains some of his wisdom. And I think what he's doing 
is he's showing us a bigger picture. And so what is wisdom that you want? What is some wisdom that you seek? What are times that you want to be wiser? I think it's when you have problems in your life, right? You're going through some hard times in your relationships. You're having some financial trouble. You want to know more about how to make your life more efficient. And so that's the wisdom we look for. And where do we go? We go to someone with knowledge, someone with experience. And I think a good example today on Mother's Day is your mom. Your mom had wisdom. Think about growing up and the things that you were told. And when you think about it, everything your mom said to you might not have made sense at the time. Why do you have to clean your room every day? Why do you have to go to bed at a certain time? Why do you have a curfew? Why do you have to do your homework? But looking back, what do you find? Your mom had some wisdom. And don't be afraid to tell her that today. She loved you and she had some experience and she wanted you to see a bigger picture. Not just where you were that day, not just how you felt, what you wanted to do, but something bigger. She wanted to teach you something. And so now, today, the same thing. Where do you go for wisdom? You might still go to your mom or you might go somewhere where you know someone has experience. They've written a book. They've lived through something. You pick up that self-help book on a topic that concerns you and why. Because you want to see a bigger picture. And so today, as we get in, I want to look at Proverbs 3, 5 through 8. And this serves as a theme for the wisdom books. You see, we want to know a bigger picture. That's how we become wise. And in God's word, God tells us something special about wisdom. Here it is. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, submit to him and he will make your path straight. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and shun evil. This will bring health to your body and nourishment to your bones. Now in this verse, I think God says a couple different things to us. And the first that we have to explore is this. Lean not on your own understanding. And then later, he says it more straightforward. Do not be wise in your own eyes. You see, in wisdom, we've already talked about this. You want to see a bigger picture, but what's the trap? That you know what you need to know. That you can rely on everything that you've experienced, everything that you've learned, or even better yet, you can be wise in your own eyes. If you think about it, it's easy to make a circle of friends, to make your own paradigm for your life in which you're the wisest person, right? You have the most control. Everything you say means something to the people you're with. But today, we want to see something bigger than yourself. And so that brings us to the second thing God says, trust in the Lord with all your heart. And then in verse 7, fear the Lord and shun evil. See, this section in Proverbs, and we'll get to it later, is a long section in which God talks about one topic, the topic for today, wisdom. And what is wisdom? And I think this is his definition. Trust in the Lord. Fear the Lord. You see, who has 
the biggest picture? Who has the best perspective? It's not just someone who studied it the most. I think it can go back to the Lord. And where do we find the Lord? Where does God talk to us? It's in his word. And so today, as our theme that can carry us through all of these books and keep us focused as we study them and maybe this week as you try to read them, is this. Wisdom starts in the word. That's God's definition. Fear the Lord. Trust the Lord. Wisdom starts in God's word. And then after that, he says, he will make your path straight. This will bring health to your body and nourishment to your bones. He adds on that fact that wisdom, why do you seek it? To make your life better. And with the Lord's wisdom, the same thing is true. He'll change your life, but he says something more. He'll change your life all the way down to your bones. He'll change it completely. So today we'll see that wisdom starts in the Word. Let's start with the book of Job. And so now Job, I have a theme for every book to help you remember what it's about. And Job, when it comes down to it, is about suffering. And I think it's one of the most unique wisdom books because it actually does give us a little bit of narrative. And maybe you know this story, but Job starts with one man, Job. And it describes who he is. For one, Job was the richest man in the world. He had thousands of animals. He had a ton of land. He had a huge family. He had everything he could ever want. And maybe that kind of wealth, numbered by animals, doesn't mean as much to you. But I think that Job is pictured in the Bible as someone you want to be. He's definitely someone who I want to be the more I've studied this. Because it goes on to say this, that God himself calls Job a righteous man. So Job is the richest man in the world, and God himself calls him righteous. And that's somebody who I want to be. I think to a certain extent it's someone who we all want to be. We all have certain goals, and maybe we don't think we're going to be the richest man or woman in the world someday, but we do have goals, goals we want to meet, and it seems like Job has met them all. How far above the richest man in the world can you get? We also have other goals. We're all here today. Why? Because we want a relationship with our God. And God himself is able to tell Job that he's righteous. Not that he's sinless, but that he has God's intentions always in mind. And so the more I've looked at Job, the more I've realized he's somebody I want to be. But then the story shifts. It goes away from Job and up into heaven where God is talking with his angels. And someone else is there, Satan the devil. And he says this, Job is only righteous because, God, you've given him all these riches. And it makes us think about our success and our place in life, but then God does something interesting. He tells the devil that in order to prove he's righteous, I'll allow you to take that all away. And so then in the very next verse, Satan does just that. Everything Job has, the entire life he's built, is gone. And then he goes a step further and takes away his health. So I think in one chapter, this book is written so that you want to be Job at the beginning. He's the guy you want to be, but then by the end of the first chapter, he's the guy that nobody wants to be. He has nothing and he's suffering. And now we've opened this door to talk about this topic, suffering. Suffering. 
And now the rest of the book, it's 42 chapters long, is a discussion about this one thing, suffering. And when it comes down to it, when you get into the heart of this book, it's a dialogue. A dialogue between Job and three of his friends. And they just want to talk about suffering. And when you look at the friends, it might be kind of hard. Because I'll tell you right now, spoiler alert, all of his friends were wrong. But if you study this book, they're all giving the best of the world's wisdom. It's like a guide to how the ancient world thought. And so the whole time, what makes it difficult for me is you're thinking, why does their logic make so much sense? Why is what they're saying about suffering and what fairness is make sense to me? And it's because it is wisdom. They're trying to say something, but the entire time, Job is maintaining his innocence. They're trying to argue that suffering happens because of wrong we've done, and Job says, no, no, no. I haven't done anything wrong. I want God himself to tell me why I'm suffering. And I think in the dialogue is where many people got lost, get lost when they're reading this. But at the heart of the story, it's a man. A man who at the beginning we want to be, and then in the middle, when he's suffering, when he has nothing, we don't want to be. But he asks this. He just wants God to give him an explanation. And I think that's what we want too. I think if we had a show of hands, everyone in here has gone through some kind of suffering. Maybe not like Job, but something that has made you think about your life. Something in where you wanted an answer from God, some kind of explanation. And so when you're reading this book, that's all you want. That's all Job wants. And God says something interesting. Here is the wisdom in the book. It comes in the last couple chapters. Job 38, verse 4. God, speaking out of a cloud, says to Job, Where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Tell me if you understand. And I've only picked one verse, even though he goes on for two chapters. But it's all essentially the same. Where were you when I created all of this? Do you even begin to understand how I keep everything running? How I'm keeping you alive? How I'm preserving the world? It's maybe not the answer we want. But I think God is giving us wisdom. God is asking us to see a bigger picture. And we can only find that in the Word. He's asking us to take a peek from His perspective. And how can we understand how everything runs? And how can we understand that because of sin, suffering is now a part of God's amazing plan? It might not be the answer we want, but it's an answer from God. And then at the end, Job apologizes for questioning God and how he works, and what does God do? He gives him back everything he once had. And that's the book of Job. And then we move on to the book of Psalms. After this book about suffering, and God's answer into that wisdom, we have Psalms, and in essence, Psalms is a songbook. 
So if you haven't read Psalms all the way through, don't worry, I haven't either. Because it's just a group of songs. Imagine if you took all the songs we've sang in the past year here in church and put them into one book. That's what Psalms was for the Israelites. A collection of things, poems, songs that they would sing at home and at the temple. And it's all in one place and in it we see wisdom. Just like how in a song, in a short time, the author, the lyricist can express something profound. The same is true for the Psalms. And this is how they look. Just a brief overview. If you didn't know, the, Psalm, the book of Psalms is divided into five different books. I didn't know this till like last year. And this is what it looks like. First, 41 Psalms are mostly by David, and same with book two, um, 40 through, through 40, or through 72, sorry, can't read, also by David. And they think they just divided it up to make it easier to remember and memorize because they didn't always have it written down. Now, the third book gets interesting. They gave David a break, and there are other authors that also wrote Psalms. And so in this book, it might read a little different than the first two because they're all by different authors. Book four is a psalm of praise, and then book five is one of the most interesting. It seems to be their worship book. And they had certain sections that I'll get to in a second. But as you can see, the book, um, we just call it Psalms. But in your Bible, you'll see these separate books totally in 150 Psalms. And they've divided it up to make it easier for them. So I think it helps us too. And so now book five is interesting because it has worship. It has a certain set of songs that they would sing as they ascended the steps into the temple. It has a certain set of songs that they would sing at festivals and they all began with one special word, hallelujah. And then it also has the longest psalm, Psalm 119. And I think this psalm is the best one to look at when you think about why this book is wisdom literature. Why this book is part of the Bible, because after all, it's just a group of songs. See, Psalm 119 is the longest psalm, and I used to dread having to read it or having to sing it in church because it's just long. But it's important. And I didn't realize it till I looked at the book as a whole. Almost every verse in Psalm 119 has some name or title for God's word. And every section asks you to do one thing. Meditate on God's word. And why is it so long? Because the writer wanted you to do just that. He wanted you to take a few minutes out of your day and just focus yourself. Focus yourself on what is most important. And what's the theme for wisdom literature? Wisdom is found in the word. And so he asks you to do that as you read this long psalm, to meditate on God's word, what he has to say to you, and then the psalms start to make more sense. We don't sing all of these songs today in worship, but it's still useful. You see, psalms is a prayer book. It covers a variety of topics. David would write in every time, from his worst day to his best day. And there's a psalm that he wrote about it. And so now when you look at this book, when you look at Psalm 119, what is it trying to say to you? That these are something you need to meditate and what's the best way to do that? To read them every day. It doesn't matter what kind of day you're having, there's a psalm just for that day. 
And if you took a psalm and read it every day, pretty soon you'd be done with the entire book. Pretty soon you'd realize how much God has to say about every single moment of your life. And that's only found in God's Word. And that brings us to the book of Proverbs. And here is um, what I was saying at the beginning, those wise sayings, the sayings that we think about, and that's why the book got its name. They're just Proverbs. And I think in a lot of ways, it's just like Psalms. When you get to those wise sayings, are you supposed to just read them all the way through? There are hundreds of sayings in a row, and they switch topic from one verse to the next. I don't think you're supposed to read them all the way through. But I do think God has something, again, special to say about every problem in your life. And it's not just your emotions, it's not just your worst days and your best days, it's specific problems in the Proverbs. Do you have trouble with finances, relationships, your own faith in God? God has something to say to you. So what does Proverbs look like? As I mentioned, our theme was taken from a larger section about the first 10 books where God talks about one thing, wisdom, and how he defines wisdom. And we see that God wants us to focus on his word. And then after that is when you have those wise sayings, all most of which are from King Solomon, who is considered to be one of the wisest persons in the world. So what does he have to say? What kind of proverbs does he give us? Do you have trouble with finances? The house of the righteous contains great treasure, but the income of the wicked brings ruin. It tells you to focus everything through him. Do you have problems with relationships? This is one of my dad's favorite proverbs. Better a small serving of vegetables with love than a fattened calf with hatred. What is God saying? Not only does he realize that meat is a good thing, but he's also saying this. What's most important? Your love in a household. What is he saying in a relationship? It might not be the things you want, but how you get them, how you treat your other person. Do you have problems um, with how smart you think you are, especially when we're talking about wisdom? This one hit home for me, even fools are thought wise if they keep silent and discerning if they hold their tongues. So, even how to fake wisdom. So the Proverbs all look like this, and those could have been all lined up. He skips from topic to topic, and as you read them, if you try to read through them all, you realize the same thing you do with the book of Psalms, that wisdom starts in God's word. It's only in God's word where he can give you this different perspective, not just how to get ahead, not just how to gain an advantage, but to do everything through his eyes. And at the end, um, there's an epilogue. So after these wise sayings, he then breaks into more of a discourse. And as we read through, it also contains that woman of noble character. And so, some advice, if you don't know what to say to your mom on Mother's Day, you could read her some of those lines because it could just be a woman of noble character. He has a lot of nice things to say. So wisdom starts in God's word, even if they're just short sayings, sayings that apply to specific problems. And then we get to Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes, the theme you see there, everything is meaningless. And believe it or not, I think this pairs extremely well with the book of Proverbs. But at the surface, it can seem kind of depressing. You see, and it's even more depressing if you realize who wrote it. 
just like Proverbs, this was written by King Solomon. And not only was he the wisest person in all the world, but he was the richest at the time. Job lived before him. So now we have another rich person. And what did that mean? He had access to anything he wanted. And what did he say? It's meaningless. He had access to any pleasure you could think of. And what did he say? It's meaningless. He was the wisest person in the world. And what did he eventually come to? He said, wisdom is meaningless. If that's all there was, I'd stop the sermon right now. But he goes on. He sticks to the theme of wisdom literature. He says there's one thing that has meaning. And it's exactly what we saw in Job, Psalms, and Proverbs. It's God's word. And this is why I think it pairs well with Proverbs, because when you read those wise sayings, you can get lost in the advice, how pithy it is, how smart Solomon must have been. But he says if you just focus on that, it's meaningless. True meaning is only found in God and his word. And that brings us to our last book, Song of Songs. In Song of Songs, you probably also have not read all the way through. And don't feel bad because I've only done it twice. Once for class and once for this sermon series. And so, if it weren't for me studying to be a pastor, I probably still wouldn't have read it. And there's a reason for that. It's not a bad book. It's part of the wisdom literature, and I think God has a lot to say to us, especially today. But the reason you probably haven't is because it's a love poem. A love poem between a husband and a wife, and it can get passionate, and it can get graphic. And if you don't know what you're getting into, if you don't realize it's part of wisdom literature that God is saying something bigger, you might be surprised. But I think that it's important today because what is one of our biggest troubles? Growing up, and especially as we live out our life, relationships. What is one thing that we can see that the world today has wrong? Love and marriage. And how love expresses itself, especially in a marriage. And so God knows that's important, and so what does he spend time doing, even in these wisdom books, giving us an example, a good example of what that love looks like between husband and wife, and even how much he loves the church. And that's Song of Songs, and that ends our wisdom books. And as we can see in all of these, God is telling us something. In Job and Psalms and Proverbs, Ecclesiastes and even Song of Songs, God is saying there's a bigger picture. There's wisdom out there. There's something you haven't thought of. There's something that I know. There's a perspective through God's eyes that I want you to know. And that wisdom is only found in God's word. And today, if that was all there was, just a new perspective, a different way to look at things, we could also include some more books, maybe some secular books, some of those self-help books that even take a perspective, a Christian perspective. They give good advice too. But you see, the wisdom literature books are unique, especially unique in one area. They tackle our biggest problem. You see, we can go through these books and find specific problems about suffering, the suffering that comes to us about relationships that need repair, 
about finances, about how to be smart with them. But we all struggle with one thing that's the same. And when we're looking for wisdom, I think there's something lurking in the background of all those different topics. And that is sin. The sin that causes a divide in a relationship. The sin that puts us in a financial bind. The sin maybe that doesn't want to accept a simple answer that God has everything in control, that wants something more. You see, the wisdom books tackle this problem too. Here's how Job puts it. I know that my Redeemer lives and that in the end he will stand on the earth. And after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God. I myself will see him with my own eyes, I and not another. How my heart yearns within me. This is from Job 19, when he's at the bottom, when he has nothing and he's completely empty, what does he know? Even when he's questioning God, that God has saved him, that God has redeemed him, and what does that mean? God has dealt with his biggest problem. And in Psalm Psalm 22, we see David say this, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from my cries of anguish? And what do we realize? It's not only the cries of someone caught in sin, it's the cries of Jesus, our Savior, on a cross. As he died to deal with that one problem, the one problem that finds its way into all of these books, sin. So God's wisdom from God starts in his word. And it's a word that doesn't just give you good advice, which it does. It doesn't just give you a new perspective, which it does. It tells you about a loving Savior God who dealt with your biggest problem. And why is that the most unique part? Because if something doesn't deal with your biggest problem, how can it even begin to deal with your smaller problems? Wisdom starts in the Word. It's a place where we see God's unique perspective. It's the only place we can learn about our Savior. Amen. Let's pray about that. Dear Father in Heaven, Son, and Holy Spirit, thank you again for your Word. And thank you for giving us this time together where we can study it. You gave us wisdom in your Bible. Wisdom that can be hard to understand, hard to wade through as we tackle and wrestle with the same questions about suffering, about problems in our life, about sin. But thank you for giving us these words, even though they're tough, even though they can be difficult, because they all focus us on one thing, on you, on you and your saving love, how much you loved us, that you sent your son to deal with that biggest problem how much you loved us, that you gave us this new perspective through your eyes, how much you loved us, that you would take us to be at home in heaven with you. In your son's name we pray, amen.